Chapter 36 The Buddha and Krishna The setting sun shot its sheaf of golden rays through the spaces between the trunks. Seeming to consecrate the silent and expectant company assembled in the depths of the forest with a heavenly benediction. Between the treetops, roseate evening clouds looked down in ever-growing luminosity, as though floating out from the blue ether a second assembly were gathering, recruited now from the hosts of heaven. The temple building, with its black and crumbling walls, absorbed this farewell blaze of sunshine as a broken-down old man quaffs a rejuvenating draught. Beneath the magic of the red-gold lights and the purple shadows, its masses became wonderfully animated. The jagged edges of the fluted pillars sparkled. The cornices flashed, the snails curled themselves up, the stone waves foamed, with froth of gold, the carven foliage grew. Along the stair-like projections of the lofty substructure, round about plinths and capitals, on the beams and on the terraces of the dome-like roof, everywhere a confused medley of strange and mystical forms seemed to be in motion. Gods came forth in halos of glory, many-headed and many-armed figures with all too luxuriant and often greatly mutilated limbs, the one stretching out, four headless necks, the next waving eight stumps of arms. Breasts and hips of the voluptuously limbed goddesses were unveiled as these came swaying nearer, their round faces tilted under the burden of towering, diamond-bespangled headgear, a sunny smile on their full, sensuous lips. The snake-like extremities of the demons writhed and twisted, the wings of the griffins were spread for flight, the grim masks of monsters grinned horribly, showing their wetted teeth. Human bodies swarmed and reeled together in a tangled mass, in and through the mad throng, to and fro, now over, now under, elephants' trunks, the heads of horses and the horns of bulls, stags' antlers, crocodiles' jaws, monkeys' muzzles and tigers' throats. This was no longer an edifice decorated with statuary. These were statues come to life, which, breaking through the spell laid upon them by some enchanter of the building, had freed themselves from its solid mass and would hardly tolerate it further, even as a support. A whole world seemed to have wakened up out of its stony sleep, and, with its thousands of figures, seemed to be pressing forward in order to listen, to listen to the man who was seated at the top of the steps, surrounded and overshadowed by the whole swarm of them, the long hanging folds of his robe, bathed in a golden glow. He, the truly living, the one perfectly calm being amid this restless and delusory life of the lifeless. It now seemed as if the stillness of the assembly grew deeper. Yes, it even seemed to me that the very leaves of the trees ceased to whisper. When the master began to speak, he spoke of the temple on the steps of which he sat, and where our ancestors had for hundreds of years worshipped Lord Krishna in order to be inspired to heroic action and suffering here on earth by the example of his heroic life, to be strengthened by his favour, and finally to pass through the gates of death to his paradise of pleasure, and to enjoy the raptures of heaven there. But now we, their descendants, had come together to hear from the lips of a Tathagata words of truth, in order to learn how to lead a pure and perfect life, and finally, by a complete victory over hatred and desire for the fleeting and perishable, to reach the end of all suffering, to reach nirvana. In this way he, the Buddha, the fully awakened one, completed the work of the dreaming God. In this way we, grown up, completed what our ancestors had begun with the noble enthusiasm of childhood. There you see, he said, how a gifted artist of days long past has reproduced in stone Lord Krishna's combat with the elephant, and he pointed to a huge relief which lay almost at my feet. One corner pressed into the turf, the other supported by a half-buried capital. The last glow of the setting sun lingered caressingly on the musk-covered relic, and, 
In its mild radiance, one could still clearly recognize the group, that of a youth setting his foot upon the head of a fallen elephant, one of whose tusks he breaks off. And the master now related how the king of Mathura, the horrible tyrant Kangsa, after he had invited Krishna to a contest at his court, secretly ordered his mahout to drive his wildest war elephant out of the stables upon the unsuspecting youth, and to do that too before the contests in the arena were due to begin. And how Krishna slew the monster, and, to the terror of the king, entered the arena bespattered with blood and with a tusk he had broken off in his hand. Some who wished to harm the Tathagata, he added, continuing his discourse, also once set loose a savage elephant. And at the sight of the monster bearing down upon me, compassion arose in my heart, for blood streamed down the creature's breast from the many wounds ripped by the lances of his tormentors, and the compassion deepened as it was seen that there before me was not merely a wounded, but also a confused creature who had become prey to a passion of blind rage, a creature blessed by nature with courage, intelligence, and enormous strength, but now roused to the condition of madness by the cruelty of foolish men, who had incensed it to the point where it was actually being brought to try and destroy a Buddha, a wild, dazed being, and not likely, except with great difficulty and after endless long wanderings, to attain a propitious human existence and to enter the path that leads to enlightenment. Being thus filled with compassion, there was no room for fear, and no thought of danger arose, for I reasoned thus. If I should succeed in casting even the faintest ray of light into this tempestuous darkness, such a spark would gradually grow, and when this creature, led by its glimmer, arrived at a human existence, then it would more easily find on earth the Dharma of the Tathagata, the very one it had once tried to kill, and this teaching would help it to liberation. The master then described how, fixing his mind with this intention, he had halted in the middle of the road, raised his hand with a calming gesture, looked lovingly at the raging creature, and uttered gentle words, the sound of which reached its burning heart. The giant being stopped his charge, rocked his mountain of a head irresolutely back and forth, and, instead of the thundering peal heard from him a moment before, gave vent to one or two timid trumpet calls. At the same time, he tossed his trunk into the air and swung it in every direction, as if seeking something, like a wounded elephant in the forest does when it has lost the spore of its hidden enemy and hopes to scent it again. And in very truth, he had been mistaken in his enemy. Finally, he came slowly to within a few paces of the master and, bending his knees, lowered himself to the ground, as he was accustomed to do before his owner, King Ajatasattu, when the latter wished to mount him. Marvelling at the sight, the assembled populace came and laid garlands, jewels, and ornaments on the great being, almost covering its body. The elephant then took the dust from the Tathagata's feet, sprinkled it on his own head, and retreated to the elephant's stables. The master had then returned to the bamboo grove. In this way, so the Buddha ended his parallel, does the Tathagata take up Krishna's battle with the elephant, spiritualize it, refine it, and complete it. While I listened to this tale, how could I do other than think of Angulimala, the most savage of the savage, who only yesterday had wished to destroy the Buddha, and had not only been tamed, but had also awakened to the Dharma by the irresistible might of the Buddha's virtue and wisdom, so that I now saw him quietly sitting opposite me in the ranks of the monks, transformed, even in his outward appearance, into another being. And so it seemed that the words of the Master were most particularly addressed to me as the only person at all events outside the circle of the monks, who knew of this matter and who could understand the significance of his words. 
The master now went on to speak of Krishna as the sixteen thousand one hundredfold bridegroom, for as such had our ancestors worshipped him here. And again I had a feeling as though secret reference were being made to me, for I remembered that on the night of our last meeting the wizened prophetess had called the divine hero by this name. So I did not hear it without a certain fluttering in my heart. Then, with the wry wit that later was to become so familiar to me, the master related how Krishna had taken possession of all the treasures which he had carried off from the castle of the demon king Naraka. And on one auspicious day, it is said, he married all the virgins from there, and all at the same moment, appearing to each one individually as her husband. Sixteen thousand one hundred was the number of the women, and in just so many separate forms did the god incarnate himself, so that each maiden's thought was, It is I alone whom the holy Lord hath chosen. And, in like fashion, the master continued, when the Tathagata expounds the Dharma, and before him there sits an assembly of several hundred monks and nuns, and lay disciples of both sexes, then many amongst these listeners think, For me alone has the Samana Gotama declared this teaching. For I direct the power of my mind upon the individual nature of each seeker after peace, and the words that are spoken are in response to the combined natures of all those present. Thus those who receive and understand the teaching are calmed, filled with harmony, and made to be at one with themselves. And many make the mistaken assumption that they alone have been chosen. In this way, the Tathagata takes the sixteen thousand one hundredfold bridal state of Lord Krishna, spiritualizes it, refines it, and completes it. Of course, it at once appeared to me as though the Master had read my thoughts and had given me a secret reproof, in order that I might not entertain the delusion that I occupied a privileged position and so become the victim of an ugly vanity. And now the Buddha went on to speak of how, according to the beliefs of our forefathers, Lord Krishna, although he himself was the supreme God, the upholder, had caused a portion of his own divine being to descend from high heaven and to be born as a man in the human world. Passing to himself, the Master said that when, after ardent effort, he had realized perfect enlightenment, the blessed and abiding certainty of liberation, his first inclination was to remain in the enjoyment of this transcendent serenity and not to try to declare his understanding to others. I reasoned thus. This truth that I have realized is profound and hard to see, hard to discover. It is the most peaceful and superior goal of all, not attainable by mere conceptualization, subtle, for the wise to experience. But this pleasure-loving generation relies on attachment, relishes attachment, delights in attachment. It is hard for such a generation to see this truth, that is to say, the laws of causality and dependent origination. And hard it will be also for them to realize the implications of these laws, that is to say, the freeing of oneself from all the forms assumed by existence, the quenching of all craving, the relinquishment of all delusions, the realization of nirvana. If I tried to explain this abstruse insight, others would not understand, and that would be wearying and troublesome for me. Considering thus my nature inclined towards inaction, and not to the teaching of the Dharma, then I looked yet once again with far-seeing eyes upon the world, and, as in a lotus pond one sees some lotus flowers which develop in the waters and remain under the surface, others which force their way to the surface and float there, and finally others which rise above the waters and stand free from all contact with them, so also in this world I saw that some beings were of a coarse nature, some were of a noble nature, and some were of the noblest of all. And I reasoned thus, there are a few beings with only a little dust in their eyes, 
If they do not hear the Dharma, there are some who will lose their way. Perhaps some of these will understand the truth. And out of compassion for these beings, I decided to expound the Dharma to the world. Thus does the Tathagata take up Krishna's coming down from heaven and becoming man, give it inward force, illumine and complete it. As he said this, there came to me a feeling of unspeakable joy, for I knew that the Buddha numbered me with the lotus flowers that had risen to the surface of the water, and that I, by his help, would one day rise above it and would stand free, unsullied by material things. Further, the Master told us of those heroic deeds of Krishna by which he had freed the world from monsters and wicked rulers and had added to the happiness of all living beings. How he had vanquished the water serpent Kolya, slain the bull-shaped demon Arishta, destroyed the ravaging monsters Denuka and Kishi, and the demon prince Naraka, had overcome and killed the villainous kings Kangsa and Pondraka, and the other bloody tyrants who were the terror of helpless human beings, and had thus ameliorated in many ways the distressful state of humanity. But he, the master, did not combat forces that assailed people from outside, but the monsters that were within their own hearts. Greed, hatred, delusion, love of self, the craving for pleasure, the thirst for things that pass away. And he freed humanity, not from this or that evil person, but from the experience of suffering, the tyranny of the unawakened heart. Then the Blessed One spoke of the suffering which everywhere and always follows life like its shadow. And I felt as though someone with a gentle hand had lifted the load of pain my love had brought me, bore it away, and had cast it into the great maelstrom of universal suffering, where, in the general whirl of the rising and passing of all things, it disappeared completely from view. Deeply in my inmost heart I felt, what right do I have to expect enduring happiness when all beings experience suffering? I had enjoyed my happiness, it had been born, it had unfolded itself, and it had passed, just as the Buddha taught that everything in this world comes from some source and, after its time is fulfilled, must sooner or later pass away. This very transitoriness, in which the unreality of every individual thing veiled itself, was, he told us, the final unavoidable source of suffering. Unavoidable so long as the desire for existence was not uprooted so long as it continued to flourish luxuriantly and forever gave rise to something new. And as each individual is a part of the suffering of the world from the very fact of their existence, I should now feel obliged, or so it seemed to me, if I had been spared some pain, to feel myself doubly blessed and to be filled with a readiness to bear my part also. I was no longer able to bewail my own lot. On the contrary, as I listened to the Master's words, the thought awoke in me, if only all living beings were no longer obliged to suffer, if only this holy man might succeed in his work of teaching, and that all living beings, all, purified from delusion and enlightened, might reach the utter end of all suffering. And the Master spoke also of this end of suffering and of the world, of the overcoming of every form of existence, of liberation into a serene state of being, void of all craving, of the dispelling of all delusion, and of nirvana, Strange, wonderful words, telling of this only island in all the troubled sea of birth, on whose rocky shores the breakers of death dash in impotent foam, and over to which the teaching of the Blessed One sailed like a trusty ship. And he spoke of that blessed place of peace, not as one speaks who relates to us what he has heard from others, from priests and Brahmins, and also not as a song-maker who lets his fancy roam, but like one who communicates what he has himself experienced and seen.
It's true that there was much he said which I, an untaught woman, did not understand, but which also, I would venture, would not have easily been understood by even the most learned of men. Many things I was not able to reconcile, for although the Master said that neither existence nor non-existence could be said to describe the reality of life, lifelessness was not the answer either. In fact, it was even further from the truth. But I felt in heart like one who hears a new song utterly unlike any other she has ever heard, a song of which she is able to catch no more than a few words, yet the music of which penetrates to her heart telling her everything. And what music! Notes of such crystal purity that all other sounds when compared with it must seem to the listener like empty noise. Strange which brought greetings from so far away, from so far above the spheres, that a new and undreamt-of longing was awakened, of which I felt that it could never be stilled by anything worldly or world-like, and which, if unsatisfied, would never pass away. Meanwhile, night had come down. The pale light of the moon, as it rose behind the temple, threw shadows from its outlines right across the whole width of the forest glade. The form of the speaker was all but indistinguishable. These more than human words appeared to come forth from the sanctuary itself, which had swallowed again into its mass of shadows all the thousand wild and tangled life-simulating forms, and now towered upward in simple but imposing lines, a monument of all terrestrial and celestial life. My hands folded about my knees. I sat there listening and looking up to the heavens, where great stars glittered over the dark treetops, and the heavenly Ganga lay extended like a river of light. Then I remembered the hour when we both, at that same spot, solemnly raised our hands to it, and mutually swore by its silver floods which feed these lotus lakes, that we would meet here again in the paradise of the West, in a heaven of pleasure like that of Krishna of which the Master had just spoken as the place which the faithful devotees of the dreaming God strove to reach. And as I thought of it, my heart grew sad, for I could trace no desire in myself for such a life in paradise, for a shimmer of something infinitely higher had shone in my eyes. And without disappointment, without anything of the painful emotion one feels whose dearest hopes have been shattered, I caught the words of the Master. To be born is to die. All destroying, oblivion's breath holds sway. As in the gardens of earth, flowers in paradise fade and pass away. <laughs>